1: Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Kia ora, I'm Bernard Hickey and welcome to When the Facts Change, brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network in partnership with KiwiBank. KiwiBank is committed to supporting New Zealanders' understanding of the economic issues that are shaping their lives and the future of Aotearoa. At the recent New Zealander of the Year Awards, Shannon Tahuya was named KiwiBank Local Hero of the Year. Check your podcast feed to find our special bonus episode where the spin-off's Business Editor, Michael Andrew, talks with Shannon about rejuvenating the Waikato River. And while you're there, subscribe to When the Facts Change so you never miss an episode. Well, this week, I want to change your idea about where the big decisions are being made in New Zealand around the major issues of our time, and they are housing unaffordability and climate change. You may think all these decisions are being made in the Beehive or in Parliament, and that it's a national decision, that these are national policies that need to be fixed. And we've had a debate this week, of course, about National's idea to give grants to councils for each extra house that is built. But I want to change your mind on this and talk about why I actually think the big decisions the big flashpoints in these debates about housing, unaffordability and climate change are actually at the local government level, at the council level. And we now have a democratic deficit, which will make a just transition on affordable housing and a move to a zero carbon economy much, much harder. And to explain that, I'm going to take you back to another time and place. February the 24th, 2016. In Auckland, in the council chambers, where at that time, the council was debating what we all know of now as the unitary plan, which allowed a lot more high to medium density housing to be built, particularly in the leafier inner suburbs. And at that point, there was a huge reaction from the east of Auckland and the north of Auckland, from people who really did not want those high to medium density apartments near them. The unitary plan was a response from the national government at that time to try and increase density in Auckland. And just at the start of this meeting, which turned out to be six hours long, I sat right through it, we had someone sit down and talk to the council and to a big group of people who were gathered behind her. People who came from those eastern and northern suburbs. And to be frank, all old and all white. But sitting at this table that day, February the 24th, 2016, was Flora Apulu, who was the deputy chair of the youth advisory panel for the council. And this is what she had to say, effectively Pleading for the council to allow for more high-density, more affordable housing for younger people who weren't being represented at that meeting. Have a listen.
2: You may hear that my voice is a bit shaky at the moment, but as I said at the start, if you look around the room at the moment, Alex and I are probably the only young people in this room.
1: Oh, it's not. Uh,
2: You are. You are. You are. are, (laughs)
1: Uh, it's probably a statement of fact. Carry on, Denise.
2: There is there is no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way they treat their young people and their children. I say this, this meeting is about evidence provided. I say this because I've been a social worker in South Auckland and I see the evidence that young people are homeless, young people have nowhere to stay, young people have no support for their families to live in affordable housing. The quote by Nelson Mandela that I just read supports the Auckland Plan's first priority, which is to support the needs of and put children and young people first. And saying this as the chairperson and the deputy chairperson of the youth advisory panel, we are here because we believe that our young people are not being heard, and we are here to talk on their behalf. We urge you to keep an open mind, and also we urge you to realize that we, as a generation, look to you as our leaders and look to you as the guardians of our future, and also we look to you as the guardians of the fabric of our society, which is our children and young people.
1: And that was Flora Apulu in 2016, pleading for the unitary plan to be passed. During her comments, several people at the back of the room, and I was sitting next to them, tried to shout her down. When she said that she was the only young person in the room, and I can attest to that because I was there, a bunch of those people said poor thing. It was a patronising, mean thing for them to say. And it really struck home to me how this moment, this place, was where a really big decision was made. Hours later, in fact nearly six hours later, the council voted 13 to 8 to not go ahead with the unitary plan because a whole bunch of people in the east and in the north wanted to stop all of those medium-density houses from being built. One of the people arguing against medium-density at that time said these medium-density homes need to be kept in the welfare suburbs. And what she was talking about, of course, was places in South and West Auckland, where the original version of the um, Auckland plan said that was where medium density housing needed to be. Eventually, after the government essentially strong-armed many of the conservative councillors on the council to relent, eventually the unitary plan got through. But in many ways, it was a preview of an enormous clash that is now starting to roll out in a series of street fights, street by street, house by house, council by council, to make these changes, to allow more medium-density, high-density housing closer to the CBDs, that allow people to walk and cycle to uh, uh, work and to play and to school. But of course, those decisions are going to be made at a local government level, not at a central government level. So today, I'm going to talk to a couple of people who know what this street fight is like right at the point where these decisions are made. Will you have a car-free CBD? Will you convert roads from being four-lane semi-motorways into places where cyclists and pedestrians can walk? Will you ban parking of fossil fuel cars in town? Will you allow currently uh, used car lots to be turned into medium density housing? Will you allow these apartments to be built without a car park? These sorts of basic questions will decide whether or not we get any sort of solution to this drive towards affordable housing and a zero carbon economy. So to find out a lot more about where this power lies, I thought I'd speak to a couple of the power brokers, people who are on those councils right now. Firstly, I talked to Tamatha Paul, who was on the Wellington City Council. And later in the show, I'll be talking with Auckland City Councillor Efeso Collins. Kia ora, Tamatha Paul, an independent councillor for the Wellington Council and Central Wellington. Welcome to the Spin-offs when the facts change. Kia
3: ora. Thanks for having me.
1: Firstly, Tamitha, tell us about uh, why you're a councillor, how long you've been there, and uh, what motivated you to get in there and go for it.
3: Yes, so, where to start? Um, not into politics. Come from a very non-political town called Tukuroa in the South Waikato. Um, all my family are very anti-institution. <laughs> but um, But when I came down to Wellington... For uni, um, I kind of got into the natural spirit of activism, really. And in 2019, I was the student president of the student union up at Vic VUSA. We did a lot of stuff. We did a lot of good stuff. Um, but city council frustrated me quite a bit in the approach that they took towards our community. So there were a couple of issues. Public transport was a big one. Another was just like the kind of slapping liquor bands all over the place, just doing all of these things to us without us. And um, I never really considered local government important in my life ever. And it wasn't really until I had an obligation to interact with them on behalf of the students that I realised how much power they have and how little of that power is being used for the good of our communities.
1: Around New Zealand, for a long time, a lot of people thought the real power in politics in New Zealand is here. We're actually talking in the bowels of Parliament, mm. uh, right next to the beehive. And if you can get it, become an MP and get hold of the big central government levers, that's where you really make a difference. Mm. But I've come to a slightly different view over the last couple of years that the most important places to deal with the housing affordability and the climate change crises that we have are actually local government. What did you find when you got inside there and what's your view on that?
3: I too thought that all of the power to do the big things, you know, the big issues, you know, I sort of saw local government as the the, the vehicle for the everyday things and the everyday things matter so much when you um, have no money and you need to find a way to get get to work and you're living in a in a in a damp, cold house, you know. It's those everyday things that matter. So I thought local government was the way that you address the everyday things and that parliament and the government, the central government was the way to attack the really big conceptual issues like climate change and housing overall and across the country and really big conceptual issues like our constitutional foundation. But what I've found being involved in local government is that really we are the ones geared up to deal with these issues because you can't address all of the issues across the country with one approach, which is what central government gives us. Local government gives us the capacity and the capability to deal with these issues in the local context in which they occur. And that's the most important part. But local government is a creature of statute and we can't do so many things because of the different legislation that binds us, but also the different tools that central government allows us to collect that money you know, the important thing that we need to make these things happen. So we have the potential, but we don't have the resourcing. And I think those are two fundamental things that have to meet very soon for us to meet these issues that are actually really urgent and do actually need to be solved very quickly in this decade.
1: So give us some examples of how housing affordability and climate change often turn on those nitty-gritty decisions that you get around Mm. the council table.
3: So housing is a really interesting one and I found it really interesting being a renter that, you know, is a city councillor and just realising how dominated our council and other councils around the country are by homeowners. You know, they are the main people that we are hearing from constantly. They are systemically privileged in that the way that you vote for your local representative is via a postal voting service and many of the communities that need to be represented around the table are in transient situations. So they're your renters, they're your students, they're your migrants, they're your workers, they're all the people that have to be represented at a local level that have all these barriers in place to participating. So not only is it hard to vote for your representative, it's hard to participate when all of the meetings and all of the business happens during work hours. It's a really hard system to access and to participate in if you don't have the privilege of owning a home or having that time to do things. So um, councils have become these beasts of homeowners and residents associations, which are not typically representative of the community that lives here and works here and services our city.
1: Particularly in these big cities Mm. like Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, where you often have people who are living closer to the city in apartments or in uh, rented homes doing service work uh, in the city. Uh, They may um, have come from, they may be first or second generation migrants or Māori or Pacifica. often quite young, Mm. most often tenants. And we know from the um, voting stats that in local government elections, often less than 20% of those will vote in local government elections. Whereas um, people who own their own home in the suburbs, so, you know, the Karoris, the Kandalas, the Sea Tunes, the um, upper huts, the lower huts, the um, Kapiti coasts they are the ones who actually decide who the councillors are and who the mayor is, and their concern is making sure that their property rights, their Mm -hmm. environment is protected, their access to a a quick motorway ride in and out of town are protected. Uh, How do you see that, I suppose you'd call it a democratic deficit, um, how does that play out around the council tables that that you see?
3: Well, yeah, those... Of course those populations would be happy because, you know, they're having a great time at the moment. Um, But I think the unique situation for Wellington City Council and maybe even Auckland's council is that their city councillors are a lot more representative this term. So we saw across the country an influx of young councillors, you know, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds. We got an influx of... Māori counsellors um we just got a we got a lot more representation in this round of things, and I think it has reflected quite significantly on the business of council. And it does matter so much because again, councils make these these decisions that have massive implications on those big issues. So for for you know city councils, it's all about those big plans that come out, those district plans, the the planning and zoning of land and where where and how many houses can be built in particular areas. It's important for the environment. You know, local authorities are often the one carrying out the RMA. Um, you know, they're the ones that have all of the opportunity to provide good public transport and active transport infrastructure and all of the things that we need to transition into a zero carbon lifestyle. And we're seeing issues that councils typically never engaged in being brought around the table. So like the pokies. That's an issue that might not have ever had any prominence with with within a council like Wellington City Council because, you know, for them, they're benefiting from it. You know, they're getting the funding from it. But now that you've got more representation around the table, you've got councillors who actually have experience of living in and being a part of communities who have been ravaged by problem gambling.
1: Just for the background on that, for yeah, those yeah. people who might not have heard, um, you are are um, pushing to try and put a sinking lid in mm. on, the, on the pokies, which for a lot of people might not realise that, um, you know, councils... Yeah. Um, have a say in how they're regulated. Mm,
3: yeah, so that's a that's an awesome thing to be able to be a part of and to be able to bring forward and it again shows and what I think is missing from local government around the country is that compassionate approach to those who, the invisible populations from a local government perspective, you know, it's those people who, who don't vote and will probably never vote and for me, especially for Wellington City, it's voting for and trying to make decisions that help people who do not live here yet because of the way that this council has run its day-to-day business. And that is so important, that councils take responsibility for future generations and future populations. And that plays a massive role when considering policies that have an impact on housing, have an impact on climate change. Yeah, and that it's risky. It's risky, you know. Every decision that we make like this, we face the real serious threat of not being elected again. But until we, local government and the representatives sort, their, sort this out... No one will ever see any legitimacy in it because it's just what it's—it's it's exactly how I always saw it—an institution that is there to protect the haves of the world, and it's not what it should be. It is such a powerful venue that has been underutilized and has been controlled by the wrong people for too long. But I think that's changing.
1: So one example of that is um, a proposal for a car-free CBD, which the council have agreed. To- to look at more closely, mm-hmm. we're still waiting for the response back from council officials. Mm-hmm. But tell us about um, this drive which you've been heavily involved in for a car-free CBD, and uh, what it might involve from a council point of view, and how it would change life for you know people in and around the, the Wellington CBD.
3: Yeah. So this whole concept of an inner city, f- you know, fossil fuel-free inner city is really like the convergence of lots of different issues here in Wellington but also shared around the country and it's for me it's pretty much that me and tens of thousands of other people living in the central city, this is not just your place to drive your car through to get to the airport. This is not just your place to 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 drive around. This is our home. This is where we live every day. This is where I meet my friends and family in town to have lunch. This is where I walk around. And this is this is the place I have to get home safely at night. And all of these issues. Um, so. Um, climate change and, and the use of private vehicles, city safety, which has been in the news heaps lately, um, and people feeling safe walking around the Wellington inner city at night, um, accessibility issues and people and disabled people being able to move and navigate freely and independently throughout the city. All of these issues converge and they come back to the fact that the inner city has not had a vision for a very long time. No one has ever said, this is the vision that I have for the inner city. Yep, let's get Wellington moving is happening, it's happening <laughs> but you know it, it it's so susceptible to being sucked up into bigger projects and really I think Wellington City is unique and it, and it needs its own vision and this is what that is all about is being able to explore what it could be. I don't think we have had a really big conversation about exactly what it is we want from our inner city and that we need from our inner city and what a 21st century inner city looks like.
1: So I, I'm a, an apartment dweller in the CBD. The mm. idea of being able to cycle to and from work without getting run over is yeah. fantastic. It's tree-lined tree streets. Mm-hmm. And as an apartment owner, the idea of tree-lined streets and no cars means, hey, the value of my apartment goes up. So property-owning democracy sounds great to me. However, mm. if I was living in Karori, Kendala, um, uh, Miramar, Setun, I'd be thinking, gee... If I want to go into town to visit the shops or um, go to a restaurant or a cafe with my friend, normally I just jump in my car, I find a convenient park or a car parking building, and you're saying that I can't do that, I'll have to catch the bus or what?
3: Yeah. And that is really, like, I know that that is really tricky. Obviously, there are lots of things that need to be ironed out to make this work to make sure that people can get to and from their homes safely. But for the meantime, we can't go on with the status quo in the way that it is in the city. People are getting hurt, people feel unsafe, but also it's just time to move on as a city. Everyone is always commenting about Wellington just being this dying place, but we'll never change that, continuing things the way way that they are. Does public transport need to be more comprehensive throughout every street in Wellington? Yes. Do we need to have more availability of options like car share? Absolutely. Do we need more cycleways and connected, you know, active infrastructure that allows different modes and ways to get into the city? Absolutely. But as a leader of a city, you set the vision, you give a timeline, which is 2025 in this case, and that is a tool of pressuring all the different parties to come to the table and work on those issues. Otherwise, things just persist the way that they are. So buses will continue to be cancelled. The the current scope of where buses go and where they don't go will continue. Everything continues as it is until someone steps up, puts a vision out there, puts a timeline on it, and just puts it all out there,
1: you know? Putting my devil's advocate hat on, mm-hmm. um, I let's say I own a shop, in the CBD or maybe I own a car park building and a shop Mm. (laughs) and um, you're about to change the rules in a way that changes the value of my assets. What do you say to those people who who argue, hey, I paid X million dollars for this car parking building and my shop has a value because I know people can park close to it. How can you do this? Um, Where do I sue you?
3: So I think my natural reaction to those concerns is, I hear what you're saying, but the evidence doesn't necessarily stack up with what you're saying. And that's a really hard thing to communicate to people is that evidence shows that, you know, pedestrians and cyclists spend a lot more time and money in people's stores. And I think that stacks up across the board, but that's a really hard thing to communicate to people, particularly if they've just gone through COVID-19, you know, it's a scary time to make change. I accept that. But I think part of human nature is that sometimes people just need to see stuff in action, and this is this is an opportunity to pilot some things, and I, I think that's what we're not very good at in New Zealand, is just, like, giving things a try. And if it turns out that it's that it's terrible, and has a mess, that it's just a horrible idea, then it can be reversed. You know, it's not going to be cheap, but neither is continuing on with the way that we're currently doing things. The other argument that I'd make is that the environment has always come second to the economy. And... Some people need to be willing to stand up and actually say, no, I'm putting I'm putting environmental, social outcomes before economic outcomes for once, OK? I think the history record of Wellington City Council's voting has been in favour of the economy, and I'm just going to try something different because currently the status quo is not working.
1: So you, you made the point that at the last uh, council elections, there was a new crop of younger, more diverse uh, councillors mm. elected, and you could argue that um, one of the uh, results of that has been, you know, more ambition about uh, investing in public transport infrastructure, pedestrianism, uh, cycling facilities, um, thinking a lot more about, um, you know, medium-density housing, Mm. sometimes cheering on the urban development um, national policy statement. Uh, Councils, though, have a history of rates revolts are you seeing any signs, or what risks do you think there are that there will be a you know an anti rates increase, an anti council debt backlash at next year's elections, where a whole bunch of people who didn't quite understand what all these young diverse candidates might do, but now they have a clearer idea? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, if the councillors who have been around for the last few decades were responsible they would have spread this out over time. So there wouldn't have been such a massive rates increase now. But at the same time, a wider look at financing and funding local government needs to be taken. And we need access to more different tools. One big tool that I want access to, I don't know whether we'll use it or not, but I want to be able to do congestion charging. Other cities around the world do it. You know, why? what's the risk of us doing that? So there needs to be a bigger conversation about that. And I don't think rates should have to pay for everything, but I do think they need to pay their fair share as well.
1: Are there any signs from, you know, around this building, Parliament and the Beehive, Mm. that the central government, particularly Treasury and MB and Department of Internal Affairs, Mm. are remotely interested in helping you out and um, avoiding a a political backlash that makes it really hard for the government to achieve its climate change and housing targets.
3: The only person that has said that they are interested in local government funding and financing and a decentralisation of that from central government is Chloe Swarbrick. She's the only person that talked about it, and it's probably because she did her mayoral campaign and understands how little we're working with. But other than that, nobody's ever talked about it. But that's what we need. We need a decentralisation, and not just to local authorities. I think there needs to be more decentralisation of resources to
1: iwi as well. I've mentioned that um, I think local government is where it's all at for uh, climate change and housing, but what about the treaty?
3: Yeah, and that's that's the thing that makes me stick in there because, you know, it can be really disempowering being a young... being me as a councillor because I just feel the people that I'm hearing from think I'm absolutely delusional, (laughs) which, yeah, I mean... Maybe it's crazy to try and do all these things, but we have to give it a try. And one of the reasons that I stick in there and that I have faith in local government is because this is the perfect local forum for the Crown to exercise its obligations and active duties under Te Tiriti o Waitangi. Because, yes, like the the treaty was signed between the Crown and Māori, but really, like, an Indigenous view of that is that we all operated as iwi and hapū across the country, and we were local configurations of people, and so are councils, you know? And so I think... That's why I want a real geared up, well-resourced local government space because then I think that enables that to be redistributed to iwi and to allow for tenoranga tiratanga, which is a totally different thing to kawanatanga. It means that hapū and iwi will determine their own destinies and it's it's all about self-determination and if they have the resources in terms of money and financing but also in terms of the statutory power to determine those outcomes for their people, then we can do what we need to do as well and we'll be operating in a great 200 years post-treaty world, you know? So I think in terms of that constitutional arrangement, local government is critical. It can never, no good treaty outcomes will ever come from central government. I think central government has a fundamental identity crisis on its hands. It's not sure whether it wants to be the local government deliverers. It doesn't know whether it wants to deliver Māori outcomes. You know, I think we need to have a massive conversation about the purpose of central government, the purpose of local government and the purpose of iwi authorities and iwi and hapū groups.
1: And maybe a grand bargain between central and local government is one way to push some of those um, treaty aims forward. Watch this Mm, space. Yeah. Tamatha Paul, um, Independent Wellington City Councillor. Fantastic to have you. Kia ora. Thank you. Kia ora. We'll be right back with Afeso Collins from Auckland. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Kia ora and welcome to Efeso Collins, who is a councillor for the Auckland Council from Manukau. Welcome to the spin-off and welcome to When the Facts Change.
0: Oh, it's for Bernard and thanks for having me today.
1: Great. It's great to have you in here because you're right at the, the meaty, grunty end of a lot of these decisions around climate change and housing affordability because uh, I actually think that local government is where these big decisions are being made now. So could you give us some examples of what you're seeing coming to your table as a council member that um, you have to make decisions on along with your colleagues about, you know, dealing with um, affordable housing and climate change?
0: I guess when you look at the base of what we're dealing with every day, it's about how we're going to make Auckland a great place to live in, work, school and play in. And if that's the premise that we're working from, then we're thinking about how do we build resilient communities? Where are people going to live? And so things are probably as basic, I can say that, but I don't think people listening will think as basic as electrifying our bus system uh, or our buses uh, is, is something that's we're, we're grappling with all the time. What our rates intake is going to be and where we're going to build uh, most of our housing units. And those, you look at the Auckland plan, you think about the Auckland plan and our vision for Auckland over the next 30 years. We want people to feel like they belong to this city. We want them to feel like this is home for them. And it's a city where they can live in. We've got major issues around homelessness, around uh, young people and young families living in cars and garages. And those are the issues that are constantly in front of us. So that's what we're thinking about all the time. And I guess coming from Manukau in South Auckland, where a lot of those issues are at the forefront of our communities, that's probably what's on my mind most. So what is being looked at specifically
1: to try and solve these problems? And the dumb question is, uh, from someone who doesn't live here, but used to. Why aren't we fixing them right now? Because, you know, surely there are electric buses and around and surely we could be building these houses.
0: Yeah, well, there's major tensions that go on in council. There, we want the ability to be able to build. And, you know, we've got the National Party have come out and said we've got to free up land for, people, for, for councils to build. We can actually build. If you look at the unitary plan, we can build. We can have thousands uh, of housing units go up. But our decision-making focuses needs to focus on, well, where are the transport hubs? Where is it going to be easy for people to not have to buy a car, to not have to live on the quarter-acre section? I think it's educating a lot of our young people and families now. And educating might not be the right term, but it's travelling with them on a journey of those things probably are in the past now. And we've got to let go, the way my my family has let go of the quarter-acre section. So just as an example, for example, we live in Otahu in an apartment complex. It's got about 100 uh, apartments there. We're on a, a main road where the buses go past every five minutes. We don't need to use the car. And that's what I think is the future for Auckland. And if people want a bit of land, that's cool too. They're going to have to move out more closer to the suburbs or out towards the suburbs. But if we're going to really activate town centres and spaces where people can be close to where they can shop, where they can go to school, then that's what we're doing. So uh, how do we create bus lanes? How do we ensure that uh, there's place, there's space for people to ride their bikes? But that takes, for my community in particular, that takes time to build in an educational process because for my family, the car is actually a a measure of success. We all left Samoa in the 60s. You own a car, you own a house, you've made it in life. I may I'm the local councillor and people are embarrassed for me because I live in an apartment, I go to church on a bus and I go to work on a bus and people look at me and think that that can't be success if he saw. But the fact is, I think for our family, that's major success because we're doing our little bit to reduce our carbon footprint. All of those things add up and that's what we've got to take the community on the journey of. So I have this thesis that we have some cultural Mm.
1: forces in our society, and you've touched right on them there. What is it we aspire to? What do we think success looks like? And for a lot of New Zealanders, that means a big house in the suburbs with a couple of cars, maybe an SUV with a big old tow bar for the boat or whatever it is, and uh, getting people to uh, allow other stuff to happen when on the face of it, it could threaten that lifestyle. For example, let's say uh, um, Auckland wanted to have a car-free CBD Mm. or it wanted to turn some of these big, wide roads, you know, Dominion Roads, Sandringham Road (laughs) – Ponsonby Road into pedestrianised cycling lanes mm. and said to um, people who wanted to drive their SUV or their car into town for a dental appointment or a, a trip to the theatre or whatever, no, you can't. You're going to have to take the bus as well. How do you um, deal with those political pressures where what I call the old leafies in the suburbs who vote in council elections at much higher rates than younger renters, people from Māori Pacifica and um, uh, first-generation migrant backgrounds. Uh, eight, my, my reckoning, 80% of the old property owners in the leafy suburbs vote, about 20%. These are in the big cities, about 20% of those younger renters vote. How do you see that when you're sitting on council, those pressures between don't change a thing, don't spend my money somewhere else where I don't get a benefit of it, and don't change the rules that would stop me from driving my SUV into town.
0: Well, your top of mind uh, voter data analysis is really good because it's about right. In my area, we're lucky if we get 30% voter turnout, and I sit next to the person who represents the wealthiest uh, ward in the city, which is Orake, and they get around 80% turnout. So, well done, Bernard, and that's just taken off the top of your mind, I'm sure. Look... You can see those tensions because there are deeply held, deeply entrenched beliefs that that is the society that some people want. You've referred to them as the old leafies and they want the ability to have a big house, lots of lawn and a a few cars. But we've got to recognise today that a lot of our young people, given the income levels that they're at, are not going to afford that. That is completely out of their price range. What might be in their price range is a two-bedroom apartment where they don't have to use a car, where they can catch really good reliable public transport and they they can get to work. They're near a playground where they can raise the family so everything's nearby. The tensions start to come out when uh, you you only go back a couple of years and we had the youth panel, the youth advisory panel of Auckland Council came and they said to us, look, we'd like to see intensification. We think this is a good thing for the community. And you had people yelling and screaming abuse at them in the back of the meeting. This is only going back two or three years. And I find it astounding that in a city that prides itself in an egalitarian approach to people having voice and having a say that you would have the old leafies screaming down the young people who just want to be able to get by and I think everyone wants to flourish the challenge is how prepared are we as a society to meet in the middle, hit some compromise points and actually say of and to one another that we want everyone to flourish What we have at the moment are major gaps. Uh, the gaps, whether it's uh, in, our, in our demographics, where people live. If you're poorer and browner, you tend to live in South Auckland and West Auckland. If you want really good transport connection, you go for the suburbs that are in central Auckland. They're a whole lot closer to the city. That's what we've got to start to deal with. You've got Yimbyism and Nimbism. I'm a Yimby. I'm a self-declared Yimby and I think it's important that people know that. But that's how the tensions start to materialise. Now often these tensions,
1: understand focus on spending decisions. If you're on a council, what are you seeing at the moment around, for example, um, the council's uh, spending plans on electric buses, on shifting to um, cycleways? You know, what are you hearing back from those who may not want change? Are they saying, can't afford it? Um, I don't want my rates to go up.
0: You know, What's going on? Look, what we know from all of our consultation is that issues that are really key to Aucklanders are the environment, access to jobs education and dealing with our traffic congestion. So that's what we've got in front of us. The challenge is how prepared are we to make bold steps. So one of the things that we considered at Council we've just finished consulting on our long term plan which is our 10 year budget was what are we going to take our debt levels to? How much are we going to borrow? And Auckland Council has had a a policy that said we can borrow up to 270% debt to income ratio. And one of the things that I was challenged by was, well, why are we so committed to adhering to the guidance of Standard and & Poor's and Moody's? Who are these groups? Who are these, in my view, faceless organizations who seem to be setting policy over and above what ratepayers really need in Auckland? And so, you know, we went out and we consulted on 290%. That was one of the four levers. Should we go up as far as 290%? We have debt that's available to city councils at its lowest level in our history. And yet we're not prepared to really push ourselves because this is what we have to think about. Are we going to increase rates? We're you know, we doing a one-off hit of 5% and then we're going back to 3.5%. You look at other councils throughout the country, they're charging up to 14% rates increases and Auckland seems to be locked in this idea that we want to spend little, we want to invest little, we want to kind of just stay. And I think it's the Harbour Bridge add-ons approach to Auckland City. It's, while well, we need an extra Lane, let's just add on another, clip on another lane. And I think we're doing a lot of clip-ons. But after about 20 years, we realise that the clip-ons don't last. And they're not going to be enduring. So we've got to look at our spending levels. We've got to ask ourselves, what are we willing to pay for the future investment? That might mean higher rates, but that's a hit we've got to take now in order to have a future that's sustainable. You might actually be
1: surprised how much demand there is for those bonds, for that borrowing Mm -hmm. by councils, both from overseas and from here, if that borrowing is presented, as it should be as what I call green or sustainable borrowing because every dollar you spend on shifting someone out of a car Mm. onto a bike – or a uh, onto pedestrian uh, lanes not only um, reduces your carbon emissions, emissions that if we keep um, spending them, uh, we'll have to pay for them. We'll have to buy credits yeah. from overseas mm-hmm. uh, in future if we keep down this line. Then you've got all the health benefits yeah. of um, cycling and walking, and um, you know for those people who just will not get out of their Ferraris, um, <laughs> you know the roads are going to be clearer because more people are on buses and trains and pedestrianism. That, from a, an investor point of view, is actually quite attractive. Mm. And what I'm sort of surprised at is how um, timid and unwilling uh, councils are to use their balance sheets to achieve these well-being aims. Uh, what's your sense, though, about the political landscape going into next year's elections, where we had a lot of you know, younger, quite ambitious, you know, pro uh, climate change action, pro ho- affordable housing action councillors come onto councils all up and down the country. But you would have seen this in mm-hmm. Auckland as well, certainly saw it in Wellington. Do you think there might be a backlash next year as the old leafies in the suburbs go, no? These young people, are, they have no idea about you know uh, these things and they should just get back in their box and stop spending my money and increasing my debts.
0: I'm weary that there will be a backlash and... Why I I think that would be a huge disappointment for me is that young people after a while who get involved in local government will think, well, if this is the way you want to go, stuff it, I'm out of here. Because I could earn more money in another role. I, as a councillor, I took a pay cut Coming into this role, you know, people think, oh, you're all on, you know, for Auckland councillors, we're all on six figure salaries. I was on more working at the university than I was as an Auckland councillor. So some of us have actually counted the cost, but we're here because at the end of the day, I think every councillor around the Auckland Council governing body table genuinely cares about the city. What we've got is a disjunct between how we get to the vision that we have. And I think many of us, are thinking in three-year cycles. And that's what I think has always been the problem with New Zealand's political landscape is we only think in three-year cycles. And sometimes I wonder, well, what's the plan, what's the point, sorry, of having an Auckland plan, which is the 30-year vision, if we're only thinking of how do I get re-elected? And what we want are young people or people coming to the governing body table who are going to throw themselves completely at changing the world, because that's why we get involved in politics. If there's a backlash, then I think part of it will be you'll see some of the younger people or those fresh ideas, you'll lose them and you'll lose that real energy and impetus that they've got around the table at the moment. But if we can meet in the middle, if we can start to bridge those gaps then I think we're going to get somewhere. And that's what I think we don't have at the moment, is everyone's holding aside at present. I think to some degree, perhaps we're, we're a little bit ideological. And we know that climate action means we've got to do these things, and that's great. But somehow or other, someone's got to take responsibility of holding the hand of that old leafy that you're talking about and bringing them with us. There are times where you just got to bulldoze your way through. I still think there's a bit of time and a bit of room for us to hold their hand and bring them over the bridge. Now, I'm saying
1: that a lot of these key decisions are at local government level in the battle to, you know, get to zero carbon and affordable housing. But what help could... The central government give you because they're, they're out there saying climate emergency we want, it, we want more sustainable housing let's do it now 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 you've got the national party saying you councils must open up the land and here's 50k extra per consent if you do it um, but what would you like to see uh, from a central government level to make sure that those decisions actually happen at a local government level that you mm. you're not overwhelmed by the old leafies uh, reacting
0: I think we need better connection between central government and local government not specifically focusing on Auckland council we're we're a little bit different we have our own piece of legislation i think we're almost like a state government in australia of all the public money you know the public taxes local government gets what 7% and central government gets 93% of all of that uh, of that local money so it's important that people understand that without a stronger connection between local government and central government, we're not going to get very far. So I actually think we almost need a lobby group that sits in Wellington all the time and just says, yep, you're thinking housing? Let's talk with Auckland Council. We are 40% of the GDP. We're 1.7 million of the population. We're huge. And I'm not saying that people should kowtow to us. I'm saying that the government needs to work closer with us in order to achieve what it wants to achieve. I'd like to see more of the of public tax money come towards local government, because I think that's really important. We're often talking about, you know, do we increase rates or do we just increase borrowing? Well, actually, we should be looking to the state and saying to the Crown, you should be sharing a whole lot better. So that's one aspect. Now, I don't think we've ever settled on what amounts are like. And I don't know that central government really want to give us any money. But the point is the conversation, the honest conversation needs to be had. You mentioned that there are people in different camps at local government level. The
1: leafies and the youngies, but there is also camps at a central and local government level where they aren't talking to each other and don't see the need to make concessions when actually, uh, if as I argue, the real decisions that will um, mean we get to affordable housing and climate change action are actually the final decisions they are taken at local government level. Central government will not achieve any of these things Mm -hmm. unless they help local government do it. Afeso Collins, Councillor for the Manukau Ward on the Auckland Council. Fantastic to have you in here at the spin-off.
0: Yeah, thanks, Bernard. Great to be here as well.
1: When the Facts Change was brought to you by the spin Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off.
3: Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment?